0: Hi, everyone. Welcome again to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor here at Palladium Magazine. I'm joined today by Richard Hanania. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about Ukraine, Russia, and the foreign policy culture of the American governing class. Richard, great to have you on. Man. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ash. So Richard is a uh, president at the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology. He's a research fellow at Defense Priorities, and he's out with a new book. So do you want to just take a moment and tell us about that?
1: Uh, Yeah, my book is called Public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy. I mean, if you're somebody who has any background in international relations theory or you've run into international relations theory, uh, my book really sort of Uh, dives into the question of how we think about how states make decisions, particularly the United States. Um, And there's, if you're more practically minded and you're interested in different parts of American foreign policy, like why the U.S. goes to war, why it uses sanctions, why it has this practice or that practice, uh, the book is also, um, you know, the book also does cover that, has sort of my Puts forth my understanding of American foreign policy. Um, it's you know it's a academic book, so it's expensive and, and hardcover. But it, the Kindle is a little bit more affordable. So you know if you are going to get it, you are probably going to get the uh, uh, the e version of the book. But yeah, that's that's basically what it's about.
0: Okay, great. And uh, I mean, in addition to that, you are you are doing a lot of writing on Substack these days. I think you know s- some of what we're discussing has been inspired a bit by your recent writing on Ukraine. Uh, and especially, you know, what is the psychology of, of America's governing class on this? So I, I don't think we really need to update anyone that much on the Ukraine situation. I guess maybe the more relevant thing is just this this interesting tendency we're seeing right now, um, where where the animosity toward Russia is kind of reaching a, a sort of boiling point. Um, one thing that, you know, I came across a lot of people's radar recently was this call that... Uh, president Biden had with Zelensky, who's the Ukrainian president, and uh, it was sort of a strange call because Ukrainian officials later told media that uh, Biden had effectively been warning of like an imminent Russian invasion. Uh, you know, when when things freeze over in February, you know, they need to be ready for war, and the Ukrainian president was was trying to bring down the temperature and was actually apparently requesting that the u.s kind of toned down the 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 level of militancy in in the messaging uh especially that that the white house and and i guess like american media more broadly is putting out so uh you know that that's just kind of one one incident and obviously we we don't really do too much politics play by play um over the 48 hour time scale on this podcast we're interested in the more long-term stuff but it's kind of an interesting example where we're seeing this this focus this desire that you know a conflict which seems like it would be pretty destructive for everyone ends up you know it potentially happening like we're we're in that mindset and the country that is you know theoretically under threat of invasion is the one that's actually trying to bring the temperature down
1: yeah. So, I mean, when we're thinking about foreign uh, foreign affairs and geopolitics, um, I think one thing that's important to understand is it's the same people who are running American foreign policy and uh, uh, basically running domestic policy and are the elites at home, right? Not a, not always exactly the same people, sometimes exactly the same people, like, you know, the uh, the president, you know, obviously is important in domestic politics and, for, and foreign policy, the media, which shapes how we see um, international affairs, you know, the same people who are uh, writing about domestic affairs um, but then even the people who specialize in foreign policy the people who work in the State Department the people who work in the think tanks they're part of the same they're part of the same class I mean they share a lot of the uh, backgrounds and the assumptions of people who go to work on domestic policy I think we see this uh, quite clearly now um, in cases where you know you have all these political scientists coming along and you know their, their obsessions are the same ones as cable news as CNN or MSNBC they're talking about you know Republicans are destroying democracy um, not that there's nothing going on here but basically, they're all reading. They're all reading from the same script, figuratively, not 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 literally, uh, of course. Um, so I think that's you know an important important point to to start with. So there's sort of the you know the top line: what's going on? What's the uh, proximate cause of U.S. Um, relation, U.S. relations having deteriorated recent, recently with Russia? And then there's I think always something deeper going on. Like often, you know, when we're having a debate, uh, a political debate, and it's you know it's about they say it's about misinformation or it's about public health. I think a lot of, you know, most sophisticated ob- observers understand like, yes, that, that's part of it. I mean, but there's also some, something deeper going on. You know, there's, there's some kind of motivations that we don't like to bring to the forefront or we, you know, or we only bring, uh, we only bring up, you know, when talking to people who already uh, agree with us. It's not sort of, it's not like if an alien who was completely naive about American politics is watching us, they'd look at the surface stuff and they'd find it puzzling. And if they didn't have the larger context. Uh, they really wouldn't understand what what was actually happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so th- this is maybe something um, that would be interesting to start on because I I kind of have this this take I guess this this way of looking at it now where we maybe actually have less depth and like less weird hidden esoteric motivations now. In the American governing class than we historically had. And and so the example I'd use for this, you know, I, I know you've you you've studied and written a lot about the neoconservatives, and you know, you you clearly have this succession from like first the old to the young neoconservatives, but then also now to this you know more more I you know politically progressive wing of the foreign policy establishment, where in the Cold War context, you have a bunch of these ideological messages you have a bunch of these uh shelling points that arise but they arise for very um they arise for very immediate political reasons right like they're they're not invented just out of pure principle you know the the ideology comes out of the necessities that certain people certain groups within the foreign policy establishment are working toward right so like rhetoric like the evil empire or stuff focusing on free markets and economics this is getting promoted in a very direct way and what ends up happening is as that stuff spills outside of the inner circle the the joke gets lost so to speak so you know you're if you're you're someone running some A liberal think tank in in Slovenia or in China or in Taiwan or something you're kind of getting just the ideological output without any of these internal factors that that motivated its creation to the point where like the people who created it may actually not have that strong of an attachment to it once it served its immediate purpose but then the people down the line might have this kind of more true believer mindset toward the thing and it seems like now we're we're working with this weird uh leftover ideological structure some of which comes from the cold war maybe some of it comes from later than that but where the people operating in it like i i don't you know i i'm sort of not speaking for every specific individual here but you you get the sense that there's not really like this this sort of sharp unified realist geopolitical agenda to the thing right it's it's actually like people have lost the joke and they're working with these discarded frames from 40 years ago that they they don't know how to operate it but it kind of still runs on autopilot and and you it's maybe headed off a cliff but you're just like well i guess the autopilot knows what it's doing so we're just going to keep it going that i'd like to hear your you know what if you disagree with this or if you think that's kind of on point and and how you read those kinds of dynamics right now.
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot there. I mean, I would um, I would think about it a little bit differently though, and, and it, I don't think we're necessarily just taking you know the Cold War mentality off the shelf, and it's a continuation of, of it. You know, I think that when the Soviet Union uh, collapsed, you know, the Cold War, it had a it had a basically a unified message in the U.S. I mean, there was communism, it was bad. We were democracy, we were capitalist. I mean, and you know, people didn't re- it, they, we weren't really siloed. You know, based on where we were on the political spectrum, some people were you know were doves. And they were anti-war but you know that we were all participating in basically the same conversation um it doesn't seem like when the Soviet Union collapsed the u.s establishment went straight for okay now Russia and China are the enemy you know if anything that it was the opposite they they were more you know they were they were willing to bring uh, Russia and China along they thought you know the end of history and all that which is sort of the opposite of what you would do if you were just uh, applying the same uh, uh, applying the same framework that you always uh, did I think that what happened uh, however and this is something Thing that touches on in my book is that basically there were a lot of interests um, who had a who had an incentive? Um, to find an enemy, to find something going on in the world. Uh, so in the 1990s, I think they were flailing around. They were looking for something. This is when we started hearing about uh, rogue states. This is when we started hearing about WMDs. Um, this is when we started hearing about the potential for uh, uh, you know domestic civil wars. I mean, that stuff has always you know existed since the start of time. But for some, you know, now we had to really focus on it. 9/11 came, and then we you know we had an excuse, and we even expanded um, the national security state. Right? There was a uh, there seemed to be a good reason to do that, and so you know we we've got we've we still had this mentality but we've always you know the people who have an incentive to have some kind of um, foreign enemy or some kind of um, reason to be involved in the world. Um, you know they've changed several times several times over. Now I think what's interesting about the U.S. approach to Russia um, in uh, 2022 compared to say the Cold War is that basically it, it reflects that we are a very fragmented society. So there's not the grand narrative that Russia is bad because it's um, uh, because it's a communist or because it's authoritarian. Um, if you listen to like a left wing uh, Russia hawk and like a Right-wing Russia hawk, you know, there it's like almost the inverse of each other's arguments. So the left-wing hawk would will say, you know, they're they uh, uh, you know they're 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 supporting the far right in the U.S. Um, they are, uh, you know, they are uh, they they're anti-gay, they're anti-human rights, and it's really just based on sort of the humanitarian you know justification for uh, for being hostile towards Russia. And you listen to someone on the right. I mean, some people on the right are now, uh, you know, le- less uh, you know le- less uh, militaristic towards Russia. But those those who are not, you know, particularly congressmen and senators and people who work at the most prestigious think tanks, I mean, those people have never left the 80s in their foreign policy views. Um, It's, you know, it's basically, yeah, in that case, I think you're still basically playing off of the uh, – you're still using the same – You're still using the same template uh, from the Cold War. You know they're bad, they're aggressive. Sometimes it gets wrapped in with like the left has its culture war stuff, the right has its own culture war stuff. Oh, you know we're not, um, you know we're we're going soft. We don't have what it takes to defend freedom, right? And so it's like a completely different vision from the people who on the left who try to make a moral case uh, for standing up to Russia. Uh, So I think it's very interesting. I think this reflects something about American. Foreign policy, more generally, I think you see the same dynamic in the Afghanistan uh, withdrawal about whether we should stay in Afghanistan. People on the left who wanted to stay in Afghanistan, and there were people on the right. And you know, they're uh, you know when they when they talked about it, it didn't seem like they were speaking about the same war or talking about the same reality. One was talking about women's rights. One was talking about you know uh, terrorism and not looking weak and and so on. Um, even stylistically, you know, and like sort of aesthetically, like how they see the war is completely different. Um, so I, you know, you, your question. Uh, sort of inspired me to think about this a little bit and sort of think about, you know, it's easy to see the s- uh, similarities that exist with, you know, American foreign policy in the 1980s. Uh, but I think the differences are also interesting, too, and they reflect, you know, a lot about how our society has changed.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I mean, the the differences there are very funny and uh, you, you obviously see them in um in Ukraine as well, right? Where the you know people have talked a lot about like the these Nazis or or far right groups that are involved in in the Ukrainian nationalist politics domestically, but then Zelensky himself it, it sort of plays this more pro Western game uh and and kind of you know says things that uh accord more with what Westerners would want to hear. I think he's actually like fairly. Uh, progressive on abortion, uh, he thinks that should be pretty freely available in Ukraine. Which, obviously, if you're like a, you know a more religious or more nationalistic Ukrainian rightist, you're you're not going to take that opinion. Um, so yeah, there, there's these weird contradictions that happen between like the the frontier, so to speak, and then these internal discussions that happen in. Uh, the political centers.
1: It's very interesting because Zelensky. I mean, you, it's relevant in this context that he's also he's also Jewish and he's you know he's li- he's liberal and he's uh you know liberal in the in the westerns in the western sense, right? Because you have like the, you know this sort of class and these are the people that the uh that um uh, the American foreign policy establishment wants to highlight. They want to highlight people like you know Zelensky and, and those around him. And but then you also have you like you said uh, the, these groups like the uh like the right sector and these and these uh, nationalist organizations who have a large Role to play in the government. And these were, these are, but these are actually the shock troops. Um, you know, were the shock troops of the uh, 2014 revolution in Ukraine, and they've formed a disproportionate share of those actually willing to fight in the East, you know, the Ukrainian army, especially in 2014, it's gotten a little, uh, a little stronger, but was really, really weak and didn't really have the manpower and the will to just go in there and fight the Russian separatists. And, it, you know, there's just, there's a sort of a parallel with the United States too, where um, a lot of our foreign policy establishment, you know, thinks about things like gay rights and women's rights and, you know, foreign and foreign policy and like pushing sort of a, you know left wing ideals left wing in the American context, but the guys who fight the wars, I mean, are very conservative. I think if you look at that, like you know the special uh, operations officers, you know they they often go to Fox News after they're uh, after they're done, and you know they're very extremely conservative people. So it's it's very interesting how this how like the, you know countries and uh, in the American case an empire uh, can have sort of these different levels and these different justifications that you know are sort of uh, contradictory uh, uh, to explain what they're what the country is doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd like to hear how you think about where the ideology gets born, so to speak. So, you know, there's. There is this sort of, you know, hard-headed geopolitical realist position where, you know, everything is actually driven by uh, security and and power dynamics and the viability of whether you can win a war, defend yourself, and the the ideological overlay just kind of, you know, the reason you can have these weird contradictory ideological frames is that all of that is just kind of, you know, the, the surface level of these deeper structural drivers of the thing um i'd be interested to hear like to what extent do you agree with that or or do you disagree do you think ideology actually does matter in in how these things play out
1: yeah, I think ideology matters. But ideology, you know, there's uh, which, I, you know, the way I put it in my book is there's ideas matter, but it's which ideas gain power and influence is, you know, that that's what needs to be explained. There's people with uh, militaristic views, there's people with anti-interventionist views. Why do the people who happen to be in power right now, um, why are they the ones uh, who are in power? And then when you think about, you know, like, you know how basically ideas um, come to come to fruition how ideas come to spread in washington um you know there's a lot you know a lot of different levels where there are concentrated interests like foreign governments there are weapons manufacturers um you know and they find certain people who are Congruent with their interests, and they and they promote those people and support them, um, and they don't promote and support you know other people who have different ideas about the American uh, role in the world. Um, so ideas are important. I think that uh, you know when you get to the highest levels of all, like you know just the State Department, you know the Secretary of State and like his staff, um, and you know Defense Secretary and the President, and you know they're they're responding directly to uh, you know to the media, and I don't think any, I don't think anyone would say the media is not ideological these days. I mean the media, I think that's. You you know, clear to anybody, even if you're the yeah, kind of person who thinks, yeah, interests are, you know, almost everything. I think you, you probably make some kind of exception for the media just because of the way, you know, they've they behaved, particularly in the last four or five years since, uh, since Trump since Trump came along. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's a few levels of analysis. You can think of, you know, the background of, you know, what, what people get into power and why. And then, but then when the, once those people do get into power, I think you do need an ideologically focused uh, analysis to understand what's going on.
0: Mhm. Yeah, I mean the the way that this question ends up mattering more concretely, right, is that if everything is is just structural and and you kind of have to work with that, then that those are much more long-term fundamental questions and maybe America is just doomed to this adversarial relationship. But if if the actual ideas matter, then it is possible to think about worldviews or strategies or priorities where it is possible for the U, you know the, the the temperature in the us russia relationship to lower Th- these these are two great powers in the world one is is you know unquestionably still a superpower at least in terms of like its potential military force russia is still a great power and you know conflict between these two has a lot of disordering effects on both you know on, on Europe, especially on Eastern Europe but on relationships around the world and so there there is this obvious incentive to figuring out how these great powers can coexist with each other so that you can you know channel the political and material resources to like more productive more more developmental things than than kind of playing these factional games with other people's countries and then but then the question is you know, what does that even look like right like it's there's there's lots of people with these kind of starry-eyed um dovish views or whatever but you have to ask the question what kind of ideological vehicle is actually can can satisfy like the actual interests that different factions among the governing class actually have in the power structure that still allows them to figure out how to do that coexistence thing how do you think about what it would look like for that de-escalation to actually occur in some kind of sustainable way between the two countries.
1: Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, I think that a lot of the sort of the, um, now I think of a lot of the hostility towards Russia among American elites um, is ideological. I mean, I think if you think about American elites and what they really care about at home, I mean, they care about identity politics issues. And one thing I argue is that uh, they turned on Russia when it uh, passed a law against gay propaganda aimed towards children um, in 2013. I think, that, uh, I think that really sort of shifted the coverage and the, the view of Russia. I think that 2016, um, when they were perceived as uh, helping Trump win the election, I mean, I think that just drove them even more crazy. Um, and I think there's this, you know, there's this problem in American politics where, you know, the the establishment right is always just, you know, as hawkish as possible. And they really haven't, you know, they just haven't changed for Bush, Cheney days or, or uh, decades, what they were doing decades before. But then you have, um, you know, the left-wing establishment, which actually, you know, more matters, matters more. Uh, but in this case, it does, you know, It doesn't matter because they're all you know, they all have basically a reason to be um, hostile towards uh, towards Russia. Um, So de-escalation, I mean, it's hard to see. I mean, from a geopolitical perspective, I mean, a lot of, you know, people who in the real school of international relations, like John Mersheimer, they make this argument. I mean, objectively, Ukraine doesn't doesn't matter to the United States. I mean, it doesn't matter to anybody except Russia and probably doesn't matter to Russia, except, you know, for psychological, you know, sort of spiritual historical reasons, Um, you know, financial reasons, too, I'm
0: sure. And the whole bridge bridge barrier sort of state between it and its near rivals
1: yeah I think I think that's I think that's right yeah I mean I probably shouldn't say that it doesn't matter to Russia I mean you could imagine a world where you could imagine a world where they just you know didn't didn't care that much I mean but they obviously do care and there's probably you know good reasons beyond the uh beyond the, um the cultural affinity um and the cultural history that's that's there um and so the, so the question is you know what is the u.s doing this whole debate is over whether uh the U- uh, Ukraine will eventually join NATO or join EU Russia I mean it's clear that it doesn't want that to happen Happen. Um and the US has been unwilling to you know make any sort of uh any sort of promise. Um so that's the you know that's the uh you know that's the you know the, the bare bones case of why you know Ukraine doesn't matter. And you know, the answer would be just the US, you know, says, okay, you know, whatever you say, we, we will not um we will not uh bring uh, Ukraine into NATO. Now there, there's other demands that Russia makes, I mean, about uh moving uh troop deployments um further further east um than than they were during the Cold War. And you know, that I think the same argument applies I mean, Poland really doesn't matter either. I mean, we have a NATO uh, commitment to countries uh, in the Baltics and Eastern Europe, so you might think that that's worth defending or not, but that seems secondary. The real issue seems to be Ukraine and the one that Russia, if it uses force, is willing to use um, force over. Ideologically, I mean, I think it's just very hard for sort of the role Russia plays. I think there's a lot of domestic currents here. I think there's a lot, you know, there's this idea that democracy is under threat. Now, democracy doesn't mean just, you know, whoever wins the elections. Um, you know, that's, that's democracy. You know, they, they, you know, there's a lot of talk about, uh, People, uh you know Trump and Trump's movement being undemocratic even countries where uh, the wrong people win elections like in Hungary and Poland that's supposedly undemocratic so there's this wider narrative now where um, the idea is that demo- you know anti-democratic forces are on, are on the march um, I think this is a, a really has become sort of the new justification for the establishment it works for it works for what they do want to do at home it works for what they want to do abroad and Russia just plays such a large role in that not that this is not sincere I think I think this is something Something they convince themselves of, but it makes any kind of de-escalation very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, you all. Well, you had this uh, line, uh, if if I'm recalling here, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, democracy is defined by the policy positions that State Department officials wish that a domestic U.S. president would pass. Uh, effectively, and I, I want to, you know, I think we've covered some some of these like more top level questions here. I want to actually dig more now into into the the psychology, the motivations that that exist in the American. Political class and and what drives these things, right? I mean, uh, the the phone call I mentioned earlier, where where you can have a president believe that, uh, I, you know, I, I'm sort of I'm not singling out Biden as like particularly even even aggressive on this. I I think he's just a, a representative here of. Of the the American psychology about this that exists kind of uh, almost pretty uh, across the spectrum in a lot of ways here, but you know you you have American officials adamant that war is near, and the country that war might actually happen in thinks that this is overwrought and needs to be you know the temperature needs to be brought down the the psychology with Russia I mean you've kind of brought up right now there are these you can hit on these kind of new social priorities, social taboos that the West has uh, on on cultural issues and and it seems to work. It seems to make people very authentically, like viscerally and tribally opposed to Russia, willing to see it as a threat as an enemy that has to be stopped in a way that like this this equivalent does not exist for other countries, particularly countries outside the West. You know, I mean, with, with China, people talk maybe about like the surveillance state and, and stuff like that. And people talk about like the Uyghur situation, but you know, it, it doesn't generate the like visceral opposition that this situation does. And it's there, there seems to be the sense that like when Russia deviates in a sharp way from these, these taboos, these, the, the, the demands, like the most core principles. Of the american class that it is kind of committing a a, a political sin let's say in a unique way right in, in a way that's like especially deserving of vengeance and opposition and punishment that's strange right because R- russia is i mean it's it's not a western country um it's you know it, wh- whether it is or is not part of europe kind of even gets debated but but there is a way in which you know we could say they think of it as us like this country is supposed to be on board with us in a way that we don't expect others to be and so when it deviates from that it is a worse crime and like what i i'd like to hear what you think is behind this way of thinking about it like this weird unique status that the place has for us
1: well, I think most Americans who are involved in politics, I think it, you have know, what you have to understand, and this might look strange to observers, is that we care about our own domestic politics first. I mean, Republicans care more, more about Democrats and what they're doing and what they think they're doing to the country um, than they care about foreign enemies, and and Democrats uh, feel the exact same way. And so you have a, a left wing establishment that really is really really dislikes Russia. And, you know, it's not just Russia that they get mad at. I mean, do you, you know, did, when we were growing up, did anyone ever talk about the internal politics of Hungary? I mean, does this anything that any right. American had ever cared about, you know, before the last five, 10 years when they got a, you know, a right wing government um, that was restricting immigration and preaching traditional family values? Well, and when it's an EU
0: member, it, it's it's maybe even more that dynamic of like you were supposed to be on board, right? right.
1: But, but, but we have to think about the way we think about identity in America. I mean, in America, if you are a Russian and you get, you know, you, you don't speak uh, English, but you have uh, blonde hair and you get dropped into this country, you are seen as culturally white, right? You're present in a certain class. And then if you are a dark-skinned person, if you're from uh, sub-Saharan African descent, whether you're descended, you know, fully from American slaves or you just arrived, you know, recently and you're from a rich background, you're from some uh, from some uh, West African nation or something, I mean, you're considered you're considered basically you can speak for the oppressed. So if somebody wants to appoint, you know, a black Supreme Court justice in this case or something like that, like nobody cares if they were a If they were American-born, or if they were, you know, their ancestors came from the uh, uh, came here as slaves, or anything like that, right? So we have a very sort of reductive view of humanity. Um, And Russia, you know, you know, I don't think I don't think it's as complicated as like, you know, oh, Russia is sort of east and sort of west. Maybe that's how Russians see themselves, and maybe that's how Europeans see themselves. But the American race-based view of viewing things is just so incredibly dominant um, that I think they're just seen as a white country. And when they deviate from what countries are supposed to do, the human, you know, the, the, the progress of history, I mean, that's particularly jarring. And Russia is more important than, say, Hungary because, you know, they have actual geopolitical power. Um, and I think that's driving a lot of this, and it's also driving the sort of the narrative that, you know, Russia is also responsible for the far right in the West rather than it being an organic uh, process of, you know, an organic outcome of our, uh, of our own politics
0: it's like very low texture it's it's a very low texture view of how it all works right Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the foreign policy establishment, they're they're the same people. And they're gonna yeah, they would deny this. I mean, they would deny it for uh you know, domestic politics too. I mean, if you're the kind of person who sees this for domestic politics, but then don't see it for you know, if you don't see it for domestic politics, like fine, that's a larger conversation. I probably, you know, couldn't convince you of it in a you know very short time. Um but if you do buy that for domestic politics and how American politics work, and I think a lot of people, particularly on the uh, center right and to the right, uh do buy that view of American politics, then you know it's natural to think these are the exact same people when they're thinking about foreign policy
0: yeah i mean i i've seen i've i, I have in fact seen um our ar- arguments more recently from like 1619 project and people like this where actually we should be breaking down these um south american latin american identities more into racial terms because obviously that that's reflected in the hierarchies because local identities there are more complicated and so you get this weird dynamic where the the policy position almost becomes like you should strip away forms of identity and and you know presumably this translates into how how people get taught about their identity in american universities and so on and, and like in a weird way, I guess because the American structure knows how to sort of politically operate on the whole skin color race way of, of sort of classifying people and thinking about conflict, it, it, it almost feels uncomfortable if those categories are like if there's a more complex story outside, that's uncomfortable. We don't know how to work with that. So it has to be, like, stripped away to the point where, where even the, the psychological identities of people from those societies, when they come to the U.S., have to be kind of torn off and then recontextualized into this, like, way more 2D version of the way we think of those societies.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that that's absolutely right. I mean, the the creation of the Hispanic category. I mean, it was really going against the grain. I mean, there was no basic. There was you know, there's polling results even to today. If you ask uh, people from uh, Mexican American or Puerto Rican or Cuban descent, the Hispanic, you know, they they identify more with their national group than they do um, uh, Hispanic, AAPI, you know, Asian Pacific Islanders. Some people say, oh, but Hmong, you know, aren't doing as well as uh, Chinese Americans uh, socioeconomically. The the you know those things get argued in you know in academic journals and you know some intellectual outlets, but they tend not to make a lot of headwind. Um I think and I think because you know there's a you know there's 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 high level politics going on here and you don't want to start dividing, you know, what's already united, right? When you if you have identity politics and you want a group to be as influential as possible. Yeah, you need to be able to say, you know, we you know we we quote unquote Hispanics are, you know, whatever they are 15% of the population now we should get fifteen percent of your seats, not, you know, Puerto Ricans are two percent and you know Cubans are four percent and Mexicans are eight percent. You know that that's a little bit too um, you know that's a little bit too complicated, and that that muddies your message. And you know the, the bureaucratic forms and the inertia of institutions they're not they're not uh, equipped to do that, right? They're equipped to count to point you into one of these uh, you know four or five boxes um, that we have. So so I, I think this is all kind
0: of a, a, a useful um, case that I would like to kind of bring now to the more general level. We're we're seeing something play out here where there are. Clearly, certain deep, deeply ingrained biases among the political class. You know, I, I, you know, I think this is probably one useful way of looking at it. But uh, there, there are others. You, you wrote about, um, you know, we saw on House of Cards. Uh, this is a few years ago now, um, but that was sort of a place where the depiction of of Russia as this kind of reactionary, uh, you know, villainous superpower was sort of put into the 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 psyche right in a very popular way but the reason this seems like it's possible is because you do not actually have a deep level of introspection among that class of people even among it seems like pretty senior decision makers right and you see things like senior officials doing the videos where they hold signs up on camera kind of you know paging through signs with with messages on them um, you know, you 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 kind of see this very simplistic form of discourse, and it's not one that seems to be just for public consumption. And you know, th- this maybe touches on what we were saying before about how the, the the ideological jokes that existed a few generations ago, where there were kind of outer and inner ways of talking about um, the program towards countries like Russia or on other issues, those things have been lost, and now there's there's this shallow one level version of the ideological thing. But even that seems to be reduced to these almost like pop culture versions in some cases, like the the way that foreign policy gets thought about is what buttons is it pushing on these like archetypes we have in our heads or on talking points we want to make in places like Twitter. Like it's just this deep unseriousness that seems to go all the way to the root of the thing. And I don't really know how you get out of a situation like that like i i'd be interested to just hear about how do you like do you think that there is basically this unseriousness problem going on and how is it even possible to 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 like sharply move in a different direction from that like to upgrade the the seriousness the the level of responsibility that's actually felt by the people making these decisions
1: yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And, I, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to say because I think this is so much bigger than foreign policy. Um, I, uh, yeah, in my, my book, I mean, I talk about, I did a lot of research on what went into the fundamental decisions of the war on terror, the war on Iraq, you know, what to do in Iraq, what to do in Afghanistan. I basically covered the, uh, almost the entire 20 year period from uh, um, 9 until, 11 uh, until the Trump administration. Um, so that's a that's about 15 16 year period you know it's um it's remarkable the extent to which the politicians did not really feel the gravity of the situation or take it very seriously when they were making the biggest decisions like you know whether to go into Iraq what exactly we should do when we get into Iraq what should the goal be and then you know Obama comes along and then uh, Trump comes along and whether to stay in Afghanistan it seems like they were just sort of bullied into it by their uh, uh, by the by the generals and those around them it doesn't seem like there was real you know anything beyond that anything beyond that any kind Kind of you know greater plan, it was just like a political headache that uh, needed to go away, and so yeah, I mean I think that we see this in Eastern Europe. I mean I think that it, you know there's a lot of people who have like serious ideas out there. For example, some people will say, oh, you know we need Russia on our side because otherwise Russia will team up with China and they will become you know they'll become allies, and then the U.S. will have you know a lot more difficulty with China's going to be the biggest largest economy in the world. You add that to to Russia's you know military power and uh, its leverage over Europe with uh, with. uh Over energy supplies, and you know that's a really bad outcome. So like, Ukraine doesn't matter. So if like if it takes giving Russia you know a sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, like okay, like okay, that's like a decision you could make um, if there was like a grand strategy and you cared maybe what's going to happen five or ten years down the line, right? I you know I I don't think I don't think our leaders are operating. um, I don't think that's where their that's where their head is. I mean I think we've become much more um, uh, short. short, We have much more of a short attention span. It started with twenty four hour news and. The internet and then social media. It seems like our attention span is getting shorter and shorter. I think politics has been selecting for people who are sort of more uh, good at um, uh, uh, following sort of these um, sort of following these trends and follow it getting swept up in these um, sort of emotional currents and these ideological currents that come and go and that don't add up to actually having a a plan or you know an ideology that's going to get you from point A to point B. Uh, So I think our you know a lot of our you know. policy can be understood um in that way and how you fix it I, i don't know how you fix it outside of you know, reforming the system more generally. I think this is, this is about institutional design you know, the constitution and the way Congress is uh, set up the way the, you know, the federal uh, agencies and bureaucracies are set up. And then the media and the, our, our, um, you know, the communications technology and where people get their news and the people who care about politics at this point of history, it's just a very, very difficult problem. So as as far as the question of whether America will uh, gain some kind of purpose or direction or competence in its foreign policy, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, pessimist that or big of a pessimist on american society more generally but as far as that yeah it's it's hard to see there's this 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 point you're making where um
0: people people think in in short-term increments and that basically stops them from being able to break out of that and and maybe act more not just more long-term but also more independently i i think that's an interesting question right you you could sort of phrase this as what does it take to build an ideology Putin however much one like agrees or disagrees with his his position or whatever Putin managed to create this kind of weirdly stable synthesis of a few different currents in the Russian context right like this this kind of post-soviet nostalgia this desire for great power this kind of socially traditional or or you know kind of religious orthodox conservative thing he he was sort of able to weld these things together in a way that seems to take you know you you have to be willing to break out of the 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 set frames that had existed in russian society and russian society now seems to be the result of a generation existing and the post cold war pressures forcing them to to rebuild the thing to a degree it basically seems like the conditions in Russia and the conditions in America have produced elites where the level of realism, the level of like hard-headed willingness to update a failing institutional landscape... Are, are different. Those pressures are different, and the psychologies of elites involved are very different. And the risks that Russians seem to be willing to take are larger, and the damage they're willing to take is also larger, where they're willing to just accept sanctions at this point, right, and deal with the prices and the shortages of goods and, and, and so on. And it seems like that's a very important development. Like, the fact that America's political elites are are psychologically fragile in a way, in a way that Russians are not, in the way that, you know, perhaps other rivals like the Chinese are, are less psychologically fragile. So I, I kind of want to get your your perspective on this. Like, is there actually just this psychological fragility that exists with us that there is no easy way to get around?
1: Yeah, there may be. I mean, you can think about, you know, elites and sort of what they're made of and and their, you know, their attitudes and their ability to, um, you know, withstand pressure. And you can think about that uh, that society at large, but you can also think about, you know, from the perspective of institutions and the way the world works, right? So one way to have purpose in foreign policy, you know, the easiest way is to just have a dictatorship, right? Um, Not to have the messiness of domestic politics. Now, another way that you can have sort of purpose and, and, uh, you know, a common understanding of foreign policy and what what a country should be doing is if you sort of have uh, elites that have a sort of, a you know, a, a, a way, a common way of looking at the world. So, you have bipartisan, you had a bipartisan foreign policy consensus uh, during the Cold War. Um, so, it, it, it's, it's a product, you know, so even if theoretically people can vote for something else, basically they have, you know, they have two parties and the parties are dominated by people with certain ideas and those ideas are going to be uh, at the forefront. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, that's something, you know, I think we have we have lost over the years. I I I mean, clearly, um, you know, society is more divided. Yeah, there's no, there's less room for uh, bipartisanship. Although there is on some things, I think the hostile, uh, more hawkishness towards China is probably um, an exception in in foreign policy here. You know, the other way of understanding is, and this is a little bit more what you're getting at, is uh, the question of... um, you know, the, how much it matters to you, right? So if the U.S., uh, I mean, like, if you look at something like, you know, Ukraine, and if you say, you know, it's something like the U.S. and, and Cuba and some foreign uh you know some superpower from the other side of the world was coming meddling in Cuba or something like Puerto Rico right or you know something something you know part of us or close to us or arguably um, part of the same country as us I think the American attitudes would be quite different America would be willing to sacrifice uh, a lot more maybe the average American would you know would care or they wouldn't care but our politicians you know wouldn't let um, wouldn't let the other country get away with whatever it was trying to do in our backyard and we have historical examples of this like the Cuban miss- Missile Crisis uh, of course um, so yeah there's I mean, Russia, as far as, you know, having sort of a um, a strategy here and having a consistency of what it's doing, has those two advantages. It has a less divided uh, political establishment. Um, you know, nobody, nobody knows for sure how much, you know, it's just depends on Putin's decision-making and how much it's, uh you know, his inner circle and people around him, but it's more centralized and less contentious than America. We can say that for sure. And then at the same time, the issue just matters a lot more to them. Um, and so, yeah, I think you should expect more sort of rational and less pathological behavior from the Russian side, Pathological, but less less pathological on the Russian side in the sense that, like, it's coherent and makes sense. It could kill a lot of people. It could be, you know, it could be damaging to the world, potentially, Russia, uh, that is, Russian actions could be. But you know, I, I expect it to make sense and have a certain internal logic to it. Um, in the U.S., you have reason to expect that a lot less. Um, and so, you know, where to go, like you know, what, how to think about sort of American institutions and what we should be doing in that context. I mean, it provides a lot. I mean, it, it, I think thinking about it like that, thinking about uh, institutions, thinking about the, how divided the political system is, and thinking about what matters to a country and what maybe you know will never matter to it because you know it just it just doesn't objectively matter and has no history with a certain part of the world. And in those cases, you know, you might think, you know, the best you can do is just stay out because you're not going to make good or focused decisions. All you can do is, uh, you know, all, all you could do is sort of flail away at it just because in the end, it doesn't matter. It
0: seems like like there, there's this question then that seems to come up or what, what does matter to American elites. And a lot of this seems easier to look at through the perspective of theater right like we we kind of have to chant the lines about humanitarian intervention or or protecting human rights and so on even though we we don't really seem to know what that means and even though they're arguably you know as we've talked about a lot of these these concepts are arguably from an earlier generation that was was using them in in much more particular ways but because so much of elite legitimacy is bound up in like Sheer ability to keep up the spectacle, right? To keep up the performance, to say the right lines, regardless of the actual political outcomes. In one way, you could say that they're less realistic, but but clearly there are these immediate, like, even if it's sort of um, just just protecting the the you know their narrow position within the structure. And, and the sort of shreds of legitimacy. like there, there's this question of what does matter then to American elites? And is there is there any viable way where you can shift those things from performance to to something more real, I guess, which is is probably this more fundamental question of are are we actually constructing like any kind of sustainable world order or or even just like a, a sustainable American, American sphere, or a sustainable United States, even even on that narrow level, and and it seems like the the performance of it does not allow for that.
1: No, I think the I think the performance. I mean, they're they poli- political actors ultimately, right? And their job depends on the performance. Um, performance in the sense of looking good, not necessarily you know do always doing things that are uh, useful or good for the country. So yeah, unquestionably, I think that's uh that that's correct i mean uh, you know as far as a you know sort of a sustainable more uh rational order i you know i think that there's probably optimism here to be had at the uh, multipolarity i mean if countries care about what's close to them there's a sense of ownership right so there's a sense of uh there's a sense of it actually mattering you know Russia has a uh, interest in not, uh you know not having Ukraine be that unstable while the US i mean the US can destroy Ukraine or destroy you know some country in the Middle East and just walk away it could do the same it could have, it could do the same in East Asia it could do you know, uh, do uh you know it could bomb Vietnam for a really long time and not deal with the fallout i mean the fallout was in uh, uh Cambodia and Laos and you know these other countries then China eventually uh invaded Vietnam to deal with the to deal with the fallout, right? So, I think that a lot of American foreign policy has been basically doing a lot of damage in the world. Um, and then, you know, just walking away from it and then not, be, not, not suffering any real consequences for it. And these other countries have often um, come in and sort of Dealt with the mess later. I mean, the Syria. There's a uh, you know uh, recently the um, there have been countries um, that have been nor- uh, normalizing ties or taking steps to normalize ties with Syria. So the UAE just opened a embassy in Damascus, um, Jordan and Syria are talking. To all these countries had shut out Syria, but eventually they realize, okay, we're not going to overthrow the government. We're going to have to you know figure out how to go, um, yeah, for, figure out how to go forward from here. But the U.S. still refuses to recognize Syria. And there was a, a highlight ranking government official who recently said, you know, we'll never. Recognize the Syrian government, so like we can afford to do that because you know it hurts the Syrian people. There's you know sanctions and there's uh, international isolation. But the other countries in the region, you know, they can't do that. They they try they they had their go at trying to overthrow the government. Um, it didn't work, and now it seems like they're moving on and realizing the government is there to stay. You know, in the U.S., you know, we can't do that. Well, we'll never we'll never uh, uh, recognize Syria probably at the. For probably for, for at least some decades, and so um, yeah, I you know I think that there's you know hope in multipolarity. I think what the U.S. has been trying to do since the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union is just too much. It's beyond the capabilities of the, uh, any state. It's beyond you know it's, it's it takes it has to, it assumes a certain level of knowledge and competence that no country uh, could have. You know this these radical ideas like you know build a democracy that resembles you know a Western country in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and you know this would this would have been hardest for the most competent government. And we are are far from having the most, you know, the most competent government and our power relative to the rest of the world is decreasing. So we probably won't see, you know, uh, we probably won't see, uh, you know, radical social experimentation in the form of, you know, the Iraq war or the Afghanistan war, what they turned into um, anytime soon. But, you know, there's still um, the potential for for major conflict um, as we're, you know, as we're sort of having these tensions with uh, China and Russia in particular. Um, So, you know, as far as American domestically, I think that's, that's a longer conversation, conversation, but geopolitically, I think, I think we are moving, um, you know, and it's dangerous whenever you move to one situation to another, but we are moving, I think, to more of a multipolar world and that could potentially be better, gone, better governed and better run um, than what we had during unipolarity. I guess one of the problems when you have
0: this, this, this spectacle, this theater way of operating is that, even if you start out with a a good faith or productive political project, the easiest way to to make apparent progress is to figure out a way to insert it into that spectacle. So I, I know you talked recently with some of the uh, progress studies folks uh, on on how how do ideas um, how do ideas get enacted in places like D.C. Uh, and I thought it was a really interesting discussion. I I think it was. Um, it 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 was a a good insight for people who kind of don't know how that process works and one of the points that got made which i thought was was useful was that often one of the easiest ways for something like a think tank to get heard is to be doing kind of the grunt work for for people on the political side, like, here's an overlap and a goal. And we're going to basically tell you exactly how you should write this bill, like, we'll give you the paper, we'll tell you how it should get passed, we'll tell you, you know, all all the nuts and bolts of of how this thing can go through. And we'll give you the lawyers and, and things like that, right? So you you sort of figure out a way to be useful to parts of the power structure and And that's actually the very the very immediately useful way where you can forward an agenda. I guess the flip side of that though is also that to the degree that so much of the political angle is spectacle, it means that one of the easiest things to do is to figure out how to participate in that spectacle and i don't that doesn't mean that you know one isn't getting real bills passed and that those things don't don't kind of matter at a certain level but to the degree that you know the discussions about what laws should be passed or what positions should be taken, the the top level motivators for those things are these these sort of weird internal dynamics where people have to leverage their political capital in order to keep up spectacle, especially when it it's these sort of factional fights or talking points or things like that. Um, it it seems like it's very easy to get integrated in in this way where you you know even even if you have sort of localized success you you sort of end up becoming part of of this larger problem right you a productive project gets leveraged into maintaining spectacle and it seems like you're you're someone who's interested in figuring out viable ways that that uh, a more pragmatic approach in diplomacy and foreign policy can actually happen when you think about what it would take to To actually like not just forward certain policy positions, but also like break the spectacle to a degree to kind of ground it in something more real. I'd be interested to hear how you think that can happen.
1: Yeah, so I, the conversation you're referring to was with uh, Alex Stapp, um, who's on the CS was on the CSPI podcast, and we talked about um, having influence in uh, in DC and how he thinks about having influence because you know they just started a think tank. Um, and I think that you know the, his idea is basically you you turn down the temperature. Uh, you don't want something that's going to be polarized. Polarization is you know is fatal because it's going to one, one side starts championing something strongly, the other side can turn against it. But a lot can get done sort of below the surface in D.C. And you need to be in Washington D.C. You need to be building those personal relationships. Um, you need to be working with uh, congressional staff and uh, uh, the federal agencies, and that way you can get uh, you can get changes. I think that's um, I think that's right in you know what he's what he and his organization are trying to do um, because a lot of the stuff is they're they're doing they're talking about stuff that people don't have necessarily strong feelings about and there are often things where there is no like vested interest in committed committed either ideologically or you know through because of financial interest in keeping things the way they are on foreign policy you can't really do it under the radar you can't have like an under the radar withdrawal of Afghanistan or under right. under the radar you know uh guarantee to russia that you're not going to uh bring ukraine into NATO um even like sanctions are very difficult some of the, you know the congress is like on the you know is in in the president's face um telling him you know don't you know, you can't normalize relations with Syria. You even have to be tough on uh, on uh, Middle Eastern countries that are, you know, moving towards normalization with Syria. So, there's just a very, you know, what, what uh, foreign policy people call the blob. It's very strong. It's very powerful. Um, you can try to work for, you know, uh, good things on, on the margins. Um, but, you know, the, the, here the president is so powerful um, that I really think it's a matter of elite persuasion. So, um, you know, Biden, if you, you know, Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, that's a decision that I think... Probably 80% of um, uh, presidents, you know, 80% of politicians that they've been in his shoes would not have made. Um, I think that he there was a, that he had a long history with this war and a long sort of uh, idea that he's been vindicated over time, that, it, that the generals were so, sort of selling him and oh, they'd sold Obama a bill of goods. So it was a very unique case where he really went against the political headwinds. Um, and so, you know, he might have suffered uh, some political blowback for that, but, you know, you, you, you can't do it. And now nobody talks about going back into Afghanistan said, right? And once once you're gone, you're gone. And so, I think here, I mean, I think if I was going to tell someone to influence foreign policy, I think it would be sort of the opposite of what um, ALEC is doing. I would say, um, you know, look for – look what presidential campaigns are saying. Um, f- find which ones you can, you, know, you can work on and influence and then, you know, try to influence sort of wider public opinion and try to influence, you know, the president, the people at the very top uh, to make the kinds of decisions that you want. Um, you know, this isn't like, you know, changing regulations on uh, – the way betting markets work, or uh, or uh, some you know some narrow question about the way health insurance works, right? This is something that it has you have to have a sort of a completely different model of influence in changing policy.
0: Right. I mean, this this almost seems more on the level of of deep psychological persuasion than than just you know changing people's policy positions.
1: Yeah, our idea i mean, our ideological, right? You just think if you had an ideological libertarian who was just you know committed to ideology, or an ideology, you know, somebody on the far left who was anti-war, right? You would have a major change in American foreign policy. You could have a uh, you know someone like Richard Nixon who was you know who had very strong views about um uh, foreign policy. You know, he could he could do he could do certain things. You know, uh, George H. W. Bush, being who he was at that time, mattered a lot. Uh, so politics is really sort of you know geopolitics and foreign policy, is sort of history of the you know in the classic sense, the great man theory of history, it's really is often the decision of one man, at most a small group of people, and they can have a major influence on American foreign policy and by way of American foreign policy, the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, that seems right. Uh, you know, just to take the Biden example on Afghanistan, why do you think he was willing to, to make that move and pull out despite the opposition, I, g- given that, you know, he, he isn't exactly a radical figure in the establishment or anything?
1: Yeah. So about a decade ago, when Obama came into office, there was a question of what to do about Afghanistan. And Obama was skeptical of doubling down on the war. And um, the generals were just, you know, they were losing their minds. They were saying, you know, you, should, you need to send a surge. We need to do a proper counterinsurgency campaign. Biden was uh, pretty much the only person at the top levels of the administration who said, no, we don't need to do that. We should just scale back our commitment, basically fight Al Qaeda, not worry about a whole, uh, uh, not worry about Propping up the Afghan government, or trying to nation build, or do anything like that. I mean, he was really out on the limb there. This came out in reporting, um, and this came out in a lot of other places in people's memoirs. Um, you know, Obama himself said, "You know, Biden was the only, uh, you know, top uh, top official who really dissented." He also was skeptical. He was one of the few who was skeptical of Libya uh, too. But but basically, you know, Obama. Uh, didn't listen to Biden. He listened to the generals. Uh, Afghanistan became worse. I mean, we spent the U.S. spent more money. American casualties went up, and then you know, Afghanistan, the uh, Taliban would gain uh, territory. You know, up until the end uh, in August um, of last year. Uh, so there was always this idea that sort of Biden had a different view on Afghanistan. Um, he he probably thinks he was vindicated. He probably thinks he was right, and then he came into office. And you know he was in this situation. I think this war was something very, very unusual because he, you know, he'd been there before. Another consideration, and this is something I wrote about, is that. It, it, it's The Afghanistan war, war, you know, pulling out was politically difficult, but staying and actually having to take casualties again after Trump had made an agreement um, that said, um, you know, we're pulling out, I think would have also been very difficult and probably been even more of a long term problem. A lot of Republicans, you know, they, they attack Biden now for pulling out of Afghanistan. I mean, you imagine if he stayed in Afghanistan and he started taking casualties after he ripped up uh, Trump's deal, they would be everyone knows they would be saying the exact opposite thing. They would be saying this war would be over. And now let's run Trump again, and he can, he can go back and finish what he started. Uh, so I think there was there was political cost potentially of not pulling out of Afghanistan, and you know he's, he's even just from a pure political perspective, he probably or at least he may have made the right decision.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, maybe to just bring this quickly to the a, a little more of like the the current decisions, it's interesting to me that uh, it was. You know he he was willing to take that stance on an insurgency conflict in Afghanistan. We were dealing with um you know a, a force that was very very good at insurgency that I mean arguably won their insurgency, and yet the logic in Ukraine seems to be that, th- you know, th- there's this potential to help make an insurgency happen there as well. Now I I know you kind of take the view that insurgency is not really something that can happen in the Ukrainian context, because Ukraine is a much older country, and insurgencies seem to work well in countries with a large young population. But if if that's the case, it's, you know, to the extent that Washington believes insurgencies are possible there, it's interesting to me that they, they were like at the attack, you know, they were the victims in a way of an insurgency that was successful in Afghanistan, they're willing to take political costable out of that. And now the logic is to try and facilitate another insurgency war, uh. you know, in, in this other theater, you get the weird sense that there's a willingness to engage the same kind of conflicts again and again, if you know what I mean. I guess in this sense, yeah, the US is on the side of helping make an insurgency happen. But... You you kind of get the sense that there's not really updating, you know, even after conflicts have been wrapped up in other theaters. Um, like I, I I'd like to hear how you think about this. Like are is there some sense even from inside that there are lessons being learned and where, you know, the the U S is upgrading its strategies or upgrading, you know, the way that it fights wars or is it kind of the same thing happening again and again?
1: Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's hard to know what to make of that. I mean, there's like talks of that in the media. I think this is just sort of the U.S. feels like it has to Say something. It doesn't say this explicitly, but it you know it's uh, it leaks you know information like this that it's that it would support a uh, insurgency. I think that's just from a recognition that there's not probably going to be much conventional resistance um, from the Ukrainian armed forces if uh, Russia invades. So they you know they have to they have to say something you know about why it's going to be bad for Russia or what it's why it's going to be difficult. Yeah, I mean you you know the best predictor of uh, one of the well one of the best predictors of insurgency is just sort of the terrain. You know, places with mountains and uh, you know river valleys and things that are hard for people, uh, for governments to get to. They tend to have a, uh, uh, they tend to have more insurgency, right? Ukraine, especially eastern Ukraine, is just it's just flatlands. I mean, it's the least some of the least conducive uh, territory you know you'll find uh, for actually fighting an insurgency. And then you have the demographic factors. I, I don't I don't think it's just that like there's not enough people. If you're an old society, I think there's something. This is harder to measure, but I think there's something you know sort of spiritual in the idea that countries that have a lot of children. They tend to have. Uh, they tend to be more traditional in their thinking, or they tend to have more religious faith. And those things are more conducive to fighting an insurgency, uh, while sort of being modernized. And you know, you know, the, one of the clearest signs of modernization is a total total fertility rate, uh, you know, below one point five. You know, Ukraine is. Last time I checked, at about one point two. Uh, so it's a, it's an entire sort of way of life and a way of mentality that's not conducive to insurgency. And the geographical factors are you know are just as important, if not more so. Also not Conducive to insurgency, so I'd be surprised if there was much of an insurgency um, if Russia uh, went in. Um, and we, you know whether the U.S. is actually doing this, I don't know. I mean, Biden has shown a um, less of a reckless streak than a lot of people in Washington would like. I think a lot of people in Washington would like there to be uh, just any attempt they can have to you know to, to hinder Russian uh, uh, Russian activities in the East. Um, and some of that, you know, leaking that kind of information now could be a way, and the, you know, talking like that. I mean, the way that, uh, uh you yeah, know, there's like congressmen and senators who are saying this stuff publicly. I think it's a way to up the anti, uh, up the anti, up the pressure on Biden, so he actually does make that decision. Um, well, whether the U.S. will actually do anything to facilitate a insurgency, I mean, if they, even if they can, um, you know, I, I don't know. But I agree with you. There's not much. Learning here because there's not much. I mean, the, the, I think the discourse is more and more dominated, like by the you know, by the factors that we said, like you know, the 24 hour news cycle, um, the you know, people trying to you know score domestic political points on the special interests who always have a certain way of looking at the world. Um, I see very little learning. You know, I see very little self uh, self correction in this process. And you know, we, I think we should just expect foreign policy to stumble on now. If like. They become one now, they, if they become like 100 percent sure Russia's gonna invade, unless like Biden calls Putin and says, you know, we're not gonna bring Ukraine into into NATO. Um, is Biden capable of that? Is the system capable of that? I don't I don't know. Um, that's an interesting question. Um but if it gets to the point where like it's a nuclear standoff, then I do think, you know, then you 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 uh you uh that can focus the mind if that sort of overrides, you know, the day-to-day of politics. If Russia just invades Ukraine, I don't think it's like Existential enough or matters enough for the U.S. for any political American leader uh, to take a big political risk, and that's what you would do if you basically were seen as uh, making a concession to Putin or even you know being friendly with Putin or or uh, or like you know negotiating away the right to join NATO. I just think the political environment to do that is very hard, and if it like hasn't happened now, I don't know why it would happen like in the immediate future because the U.S. U.S. seems to really think I mean the invasion is uh is imminent, and I don't know like you know Ukraine says it's not, but you know the U.S. Might have an incentive to lie. The Ukraine might have an incentive to lie, right? They, they might want to uh, not have uh, panic. So it could be very well that the U.S. is uh, telling the truth here. I don't think. Yeah, I think the system has deep, deep problems, and they're just sort of highlighted by this. Uh, uh, but you know, by current tensions, I don't think that they're uh, anything new, and I don't see any uh, uh, any hope of things getting better on that front. So. You said
0: something interesting there about the about that relation between insurgency and demographics. and I kind of want to just take this in a in a different direction for a moment. Eastern Europe is a place with low fertility all over, right and And so if, if it's correct that insurgency kind of depends on high numbers of young people, who are maybe in 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 poverty or or are want adventure and are willing to die then it it seems like yeah that is not a country that gives itself over to that mode of warfare but uh, it sort of occurs to me that i mean the fertility thing is happening all over the world right every country that successfully develops Seems to, you know, c- capitalism eats the young in a sense, right? Like,
1: Almost, not not as it's not not as real. And then there's a, um, you know, it's it's better or worse in some places. Right, right,
0: yeah. There seem to be there's a couple exceptions, but but there overall, right? There there seems to be this trend. I mean, and even in Israel, the the higher fertility is is among the demographics that kind of reject uh, key aspects of. Of the modernization, right, among the older yeah, Jews even and so the on. Last
1: time I checked, even secular Jews tended uh, to have pretty high fertility for the devolved world. So it's, uh, yeah, Israel right. is a very, very unique case.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, but so the, the kind of thing that I'm, I'm wondering here. To the degree that it seems like a lot, you know, most modern conflicts seem to be kind of insurgencies of various kinds. I mean, a lot of the U.S. fights right now, the Syrian conflict was kind of a state government versus uh, ISIS and other groups. You know, you can even look at Nigeria where you have like Boko Haram versus, you know, various forces within the Nigerian state. You have a situation in Myanmar, uh, which has been longstanding with the Karen people there a lot of conflict seems to take the form of states fighting insurgencies to the degree then that it's, you know, the, the, I don't know if you buy these predictions, so so maybe we can reject them out of hand, but to the degree that it seems like global fertility is, is going down and down and down, does that kind of imply that this form of warfare is going to ultimately disappear?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it has pretty much disappeared in the regions that have low fertility, right? Um, so, it you know, it would depend on, you know, if Africa and Middle Eastern countries, they become wealthier. I mean, the, the other thing that wealth does, I think the most important thing is it gives more state capacity. The government is more able to stamp out uh, dissent. You know, this idea of like adventure and like uh, idea of like people looking for meaning. I mean, that exists even in Western countries. So a lot of uh, ISIS recruits to Syria and Iraq in the early 2010s were coming from Western countries. So if there's an opportunity even even young men in uh in uh the most developed states you know will often take advantage and you know go go looking for adventure um but what happens in wealthy society but there's few i think there's fewer of those people as you have sort of modern values and also uh the state is better able to clamp down on them so those people those uh those uh uh young Muslims in France you know they didn't real they had terrorist attacks but they didn't they couldn't pull off an insurgency in france they went and they fought in you know in Syria and so yeah you know i think that there's yeah there's a general historical progress where where It's you know insurgency and civil war is something you sort of graduate out of. Now the problem is once you have insurgency and civil war, it's hard to break the cycle. So Syria is poor right now; it has you know it's still at the state of like low level conflict, and it's also sanctioned by the U.S. Um, so it like experiencing economic growth is very difficult. Uh, Lebanon is you know in a in a similar situation. So right. in these African countries who have these civil wars, you know there's no clear path to sort of uh, you know change uh, sort of changing directions uh, from the path that you're on. So I think you're. right. I think that we do see, you know, these, these, uh, uh, you know, uh, conflict does depend on levels of economic development and social values. But does that mean it's disappearing? I don't know, because there's still parts of the world that are sort of stuck in a vicious cycle.
0: Well, you know, the the other demographic trend that I sometimes hear, um, or I sometimes see pointed at is male female proportions right so a country like china where they have the one child policy or india where you have high rates of abortion of um female fetuses you're going to have a a uh, an excess basically of males that can't find spouses and so the the theory goes right well you know, males without families and without maybe the the same job opportunities are going to be, um, you know, social outcasts, and they're going to express themselves violently, and and maybe that that sort of excess male population becomes the cannon fodder, or or you know, you can convince them to like join the military and invade somewhere else. I, I don't know how much we actually see that theory playing out, at least right now. I mean, even even in, in China and India, that, you know, you you don't really have a huge number of, like, Indian conflicts happening within its borders. I mean, you, you get, like, the Naxalites here and there, and, and maybe, like, some of these these Hindutva-style militias. But, but you know, I- India is not the same as, as many regions in the Middle East with, with um, much more parity in their male-female populations. So like that's the other major demographic predisposition to certain kinds of conflict i see pointed out but uh, i i'd be interested to hear like in in low fertility countries do you think these countries are ultimately willing to go to war at all people sometimes say well older people will vote for war because they know they won't fight in it and there's more of them so you'll go to war but i it seems like psychologically if you don't have many young people if you know you don't have that many bodies that can actually do the fighting i mean even today when a lot of this you know starts becoming automated in various ways and you're not actually in the front line you still need people there you still have to have that psychological confidence that you could take losses and and survive and overcome them and it seems like if your fertility is low there's like this psychological cost
1: Yeah. I mean, well, the the gender ratio, I don't, I don't don't know if I buy that. I mean, in the West, you know, like a lot of guys can't find girlfriends. I mean, it's very, very common. And, you know, we don't see like, you know, with like sex goes down, violence goes up. Like we don't, we don't really see much of that. So, you know, there's guys who just in any society, even if the ratio is like, you know, it maybe reduces your chances of getting girlfriend, you know, slightly if there's like 110 men for every like hundred women, you know, but even if, but if it's even, even if it's 100, 100, you know, a lot of uh, men can't get girlfriends and maybe your chances are a little worse, you know, depending on the gender ratio. But, you know, I I don't think that's going to, like, tip you over into into becoming some kind of holy warrior or something. Um, The... yeah, I mean it's it's hard to differentiate like the psychology from like you're saying oh well, oh if you have um, this idea that you are um, you know you can't take the casualties you sort of have a different attitude if you have low fertility but the but it's 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 endogenous so the fertility is you know happening in the same society that's thinking about whether go whether to go to war right so it, it, there's you, there's right. when you're you know you think about the spiritual and sort of psychological difference between a country where people have five kids each and where people have one I mean their lifestyles their, their experience of being Human is just completely different. So it's not as simple as just oh you know we have you know we're rationally calculating we have fewer kids therefore we can't lose a lot of people in war. It's more like this is a completely yeah, different like mode of life. Yes,
0: I, I I think that's correct. It's not people don't do this in a calculation stage. It's 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 more like you know when when you're in in a city even where there's a lot more children that there's this kind of vitality you could say that I think just exists there where you have this confidence that like yeah there's a new generation coming there's the future you're in a place where there's like very few children where everyone is just aging where you know the, the people who were kind of like the the main people in your social circles the 40 years ago are still the main people and no one new is coming in I don't think that the, the instincts you get there the confidence that you can survive like a lot of conflict and chaos that 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 psychology can continue very long
1: yeah i think i think that's i think that's right i, I mean there's a just uh you know yeah i mean there's you know the, the decision to have children i mean it's it's a tough decision and it's like it's not you know it's not a. You know, there's a I think there's a quote from uh, Spengler. He says, you know, once you once you start to ask why and you start to calculate, you know, I'm paraphrasing, you, you know, you, the battle is already lost. <laughs> like once it's yeah. even seen as a sort of a uh, uh, as a sort of a question of costs and benefits and risk and reward, um, you're just in a completely different mindset. So yeah, I mean that you know so if you get less war because of that, you know that's that's great. I mean I think one of the things you know one one of the things that's important to think about is how to get that dynamism, how to get that celebration of life, how to get that you know progress and moving society forward while also not getting some of the bad stuff that's correlated with it like going to war more often you've you've
0: talked before about how some of the same clashes that occur in in the domestic american landscape on cultural issues and so on these these are the same things that are kind of getting reproduced into the the relationship with russia and so there's a way where the, these very close domestic political political battles end up being reproduced at least in the lens people are taking on the world stage as well, right? So you get this weird dynamic where like the whole world is America, right? and And the same battles that Ameri- that that, you know, the political class sees themselves as fighting at home are 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 the battles that they are also fighting on the world stage. And, and we've kind of touched on that in various ways, right, with um, so some of the racial discourse uh, that goes on and, and some of the cultural stuff. I, I don't have a good way to phrase this question other than to say that, is there a useful way where people who see the whole world as being America can wake up to the fact that other worlds are out there? Like, th- America's in this weird place as as an empire, right, where... Because there is so much emphasis on the ideological content, right, where there is conformity of values and so on, at at least in like the, the ideological justification of the whole thing that you, you cannot tolerate quite the degree of difference. Um, You know, like, let's, we can compare to Russia, where, uh, you know, the, the old Russian empire had a lot of religions and ethnicities in it, and there was clearly this, like, dominant Russian and, like, you know, Christian Orthodox ruling class in the empire. But within the thing, there were, I mean, there were different levels of development. You had, like, tribal societies out in the Far East. You had the, you know, the Tatar and the Central Asian populations. uh, And and then you had kind of the Russian core. and, And there didn't seem to really be that much concern with forcing you know cultural integration except maybe among some of like local elites and so on having them learn russian basically there was this world where there was consciousness that there are many societies here and and yeah we're kind of we're empire builders but it's not actually that important for us to change every other society even when we have kind of imperial power over them whereas the american project is much more one where our society expands it seems like right like maybe we keep certain you know c- cultural practices or something that aren't that harmful but on values on like the most fundamental things we' we're, we're gonna become more and more similar right and, and that I mean even in, in the sort of optimistic globalist project, you know the optimistic expressions of that that's kind of the hope right We become one world. you you mentioned multipolarity to the extent that you see multipolarity as something that is going to happen that is kind of unavoidable now do you think that the american political class can ever figure out a a way to reconcile their need for the need for ideological legitimacy with a world where you just have different societies that don't need to be reconciled where like you don't need this universal homogenization happening in any way like these seem like contradictory tendencies that are very hard to reconcile without a a systematic update to to how we think about this
1: Yeah, I think the idea of end of history that everyone is a a Democrat and a capitalist, you know, and eventually is going to get there. And now they've added more to it, right? Everyone has to accept women's rights and gay rights and like all these things that were just, you know, that weren't even uh, uh, seen as part of uh, democracy or Western civilization, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Um, So it seems like we're getting, we're going in, if anything, in the opposite direction. We're sort of putting more demands on, you know, what countries have to be um, in order to be legitimate. I mean, it seems like there's a, sort of a radical sort of uh, increase in, you know, at least ambitions, that, you know, not like in how much we're willing to sacrifice, but like how, what we're willing to say other countries should uh, adopt. There's a lot more of that. And at the same time, then real life. I mean, there's just uh, we're we're you know declining in, in power relative to relative to China in particular. But you know, other uh, India is also growing, and India is going to become more of a uh, uh, more of a power in, in coming decades. And Russia, you know, even though its economy is not the greatest in the world, I mean, it's still a serious power as far as military and uh, military abilities and uh, control over energy supplies. So you know, we're, we're what's going to sort of happen is you're going to see sort of the U.S. Um, uh, uh, you know, have less of a say in the world. So we saw that in Afghanistan. Ultimately, we didn't control what would happen in Afghanistan. The guys who we overthrew were the same ones who uh, uh, retook power um, in uh, last August. Um, we're gonna we're seeing um, in Ukraine if Russia really wants to use military force, we're gonna find that we we really, we can't stop them. And then uh, you know something like China and you know Taiwan in the long run, we'll see if the U.S. is actually able to uh, is able to defend Taiwan if China wants to uh, push. You know, even the stuff like uh, Huawei, you know, the U.S. has had like, you know, it's had like, you know, 50% success when it's tried to get other countries not to use Huawei. Some countries have decided not to. Um, other countries like, you know, South Korea, you know, went ahead with the 5G and then the U.S. went and they tried to really cripple the country uh, through through um, through uh, expert, export controls and sanctions and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, we are we are seeing this rise of multipolarity at the same time. It really has not sunk in, um, I think, with the American relate. Or maybe it's sinking in, but it's sort of it's, it's becoming more of a... Uh, you know, they're sort of lashing out um, because they realize, you know, that it's sort of slipping for, you know, what's happening is slipping for their fingers. So, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen? I I don't know. I mean, I think China's the the issue to watch here. I think that if, you know, if China solves the birth rate issue, because this is sort of the last uh, refuge of those who doubt the Chinese system, they say, okay, they're not going to grow. They're going to collapse. They're going to democratize. None of that ever happened. But now the thing they say is population collapse, that, that, You know, is more likely to happen than the other than the other things that people were uh, uh, predicting. But if China can get a handle on the birth uh, the birth issue, and then you know that's going to have downstream effects on their economy and their level of civilizational health, uh, the gap between the U.S. and China would increase a lot. I think that could I think that could uh, you know I think that could really discredit the American elite. But you know, alternatively, they could just sort of. You know they could just sort of continue to do what what they've been doing. I mean, you know, the Middle East will always be there to like push around. I mean, Iran will always be there to sort of push around. Uh, if you know the you know like if you look at something like Belarus, like the U.S. was saying, oh, the being you know, Belarus, we are you know you know they were supporting the uh, uh, the protests there. Well, you know the uh, Lukashenko put it down. They made an alliance with Russia, and then we forgot about Belarus and we just moved on to Ukraine. Right? It's the same thing with Hong Kong and China. You know, if, and so like if next conflict that China has involved is involved with or. The next sort of domestic disturbance, if if uh, if there ever is one, um, we're gonna you know care about that. And if you know the U.S. loses and the other side gets its way, um, I think we're just gonna I think we're just gonna move on to that too. So you know you could imagine extremely salient things like you know China goes to Mars, right, or China you know conquers Taiwan. Maybe Russia, maybe Russia actually conquering Ukraine—you know, uh, as unlikely as that would be—if it actually like annexed Ukraine, something like that could really be a shock to the system. But without something like that, I mean, we have a remarkable ability, and the foreign policy establishment just has a remarkable ability to to not learn from the past. And not to set itself on the right path, and so you know we could see a very strange world of uh, continuing decreasing American power, uh, combined with uh, just as much sort of grandiose eloquence about the rules based international order and American leadership. You know that could just stay the same as as it has, or even increase as time goes on.
0: Right. Well, I I guess like the worst case scenario here is you know because there were always in the twentieth century there there were all these much more concrete things that the u.s could point to like especially material prosperity right was you know you could kind of short circuit some of these ideological debates sometimes just by pointing at the fact that a a poor person in america is living far better than even a a mid or, or upper middle tier person in in some of these rival states and america can't do that now because on the material front china has like decisively Outdone the U.S. I mean, you know, there's it's kind of hard to tell sometimes on, on on stuff like GDP, but the a lot of the industrial production seems more real in China now. The the cutting edge technological stuff seems to be more real, and China accomplished it within effectively three, you know, two or two to three generations, depending on the region. So th- that core like materially real contribution of the American system is no longer something you can credibly offer. Security is no longer something one can credibly offer. There, There's this thing that happens where the proportion of real stuff that the American system offers is, is less and less, and even what it used to offer, it doesn't seem to be able to offer anymore. And so what happens is you start leveraging more and more of the political capital into the spectacle side of that equation right into you know we're, we will punish you for pointing out that this thing isn't working uh we will if you try to learn lessons from from the the military failures we have to like not you know you don't get to come to the the conferences and the talks because you're not supposed to point out that that we've had losses you know and we you can you know I, I was talking with someone recently who pointed out when vladimir putin was being interviewed by uh oliver stone one of the things he mentioned was you know as obama's leaving he gives uh, Joe Biden, you know, then the vice president, the, I think it was the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and he sort of compared it to, you know, in the late Soviet Union, the whole thing is falling apart, and these party apparatchiks are just giving themselves medals all the time, and, you know, you have these ridiculous photos where people have all these medals, and meanwhile, they've actually lost, like, a bunch of conflicts, and their production is going down, and the people have less and less in, in their food rations, and, you know, the whole thing is falling apart, and so... When the thing is falling apart, the last thing you have to do is recognize it. Because if you recognize it, the spectacle disappears too. And then you have nothing. Then you have no more ideological legitimacy. And I mean, that that seems to be what happened with the Soviet Union in, in a lot of ways. And that seems to be the path that the U.S. Has could quite easily be on. Because right now there is no, you know, there's no great reformer or anything that seems to be in the wings
1: I don't think I'm as pessimistic on American society uh, as that would suggest. Um, I think on our foreign policy, yes, I'm extremely pessimistic. I think we've done disastrous things for, for ourselves and the world. The luxury of being an American is it doesn't matter much. Like we can destroy you know countries and and we can you know we can continue go on our way. Um, I some. Parts of American society have been functioning very poorly. I mean, like our our uh, m- our murder rate, our crime rate, more generally, for a country of our wealth, I mean, is ridiculous. If you walk through, you know, Chicago or San Francisco, I mean, they're either violent or they're you know they're dirty. I mean, the, the infrastructure doesn't work. But if you look at like the basics of like uh, economic uh, growth, the U.S. has been doing pretty well for a um, uh, for a developed state. I think we're in better shape than uh, than Europe here. Uh, you look at the COVID crisis. Um, you know, the all countries basically in the West. Um, Uh, had high death rates. I think America preserved more freedom um, than a lot of places. It also um, developed the the, uh, the main vaccines, of course, so yeah, I think American society, you know, for some for some uh, for some deep historical reasons and for some ideological reasons, uh, based on you know sort of a more accepting of capitalism and even the polarization that you know makes some things harder actually makes things better because the government can't you know screw things up. You have sort of diversity in uh, states and what they're doing, um, and you know so government could be a bit in- innovative at the local at the and at the state level. Um, so I, yeah, I don't think the American I don't think the American system is is that in that terrible of shape. I think we have serious problems again, like crime and infrastructure, and our foreign policy has been extremely bad. Um, and I think, but if our legitimacy depends on controlling the world and are moving everybody towards the end of history, and our, our you know, our the legitimacy of our. our country. I don't think it's actually legitimacy of our country. I mean, it's a legitimacy like the way, not the way Americans see their country, but I think that's like the legitimacy of the elites, that they're guardians of this world order. I think their legitimacy goes away as the foreign policy failures and the geopolitical shifts become impossible to deny. Um, but I think that could happen and the rest of us could be okay. It's just a question of sort of, you know, how much does, uh, how disastrous is our, when the failures of foreign policy, when the chickens come home to roost, so, so to speak, um, how disastrous is that for the rest of us? So that could be anything from not mattering all that much to you know nuclear war that wipes us all out. That that you know that's a question that's right. yet to be answered.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that's maybe an interesting note to end on. Like the, it it sounds it sounds like if if you are going to point to what is something that is real and concrete that America actually does still do that you know potentially we should maybe look at this more when we talk about the legitimacy of the american system it 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 seems to be that america is able to integrate a lot more difference maybe and and maybe actually a bit more social chaos than other societies are and stay stay viable stay healthy stay fairly resilient you know and and to, to where the individual level is like you you know in, in the 20th century you were you were literally just recruiting people like weird geniuses from other countries you you give them the visas you bring them over you integrate them and and you know they they staff your physics departments and help build NASA and and these kinds of things like you can very easily imagine that that being a a strength of the american system that ends up uh, you know I- I- in some kind of new iteration that aspect actually becomes very important and it's not something that it seems like china or russia or these other rivals can easily offer
1: yeah i think that's right i think that those are our strengths it's sort of a, uh you know a sort of a chaos that uh, leads to innovation Ability to have outsiders, diversity as far as like forms of government and culture within, within the country. I mean, those are our strengths, our weaknesses is, you know, public order, um, the ability to do great things with uh, with government, um, you know, obviously foreign policy now and remaking other societies. But yeah, I think that you know, the pessimistic case for America is I think we are, the you know, the best path forward is focusing on the things we're good at and maybe not trying you know, so hard at the things we're not.
0: Okay. Well, Richard, uh, this has been a super interesting discussion. We we kind of covered a lot of ground here. Thanks for coming on. Uh, this has been super interesting. Uh, as mentioned at the start, um, Richard is pretty active on Substack. Can you just say the title of your new book again?
1: Uh, public Choice Theory and the Illusion of Grand Strategy, um, How Generals, Weapons, Manufacturers, and Foreign Governments Shape American Foreign Policy. Uh, people can find me on Twitter, Substack, just my name, Rich, Richard Hanania.
0: Okay. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, Richard, uh, we'll, we'll definitely have you back soon. And uh, till next time, everyone. Bye-bye for now.